The Wagner Group's short-lived armed rebellion posed what many pundits regard as the greatest challenge to Russian President Vladimir Putin's power that spans over two decades. The rebellion may have been abruptly called off in a deal brokered by the Belarusian president, Alexander Lukashenko, but it still poses big fundamental questions of what is Russia after the rebellion. And what about the Russia's position when it comes to the war in Ukraine? For an expert analysis on the topic, we're joined by Professor Kim Byung-ju of the Hankook University of Foreign Studies. Good morning, Professor Kim. Good morning. Happy Monday. <laughs> Same to you, too. Uh, maybe it's uh, worth explaining to our listeners once more the Wagner Group in detail. We came to know Yevgeny Prigozhin as Putin's chef. So how did he go from a successful restauranteur to creating this uh, paramilitary group? Yeah, this the Wagner Group itself is a uh, what they call PMC, private military company. Uh, interesting concept there, and this is not a national army as we know. And what we know is supposedly, I mean, the the Western media and analysts they are not hundred percent sure about all the details. But supposedly, what's known in the West is that this private military company was first created back in 2014 when Russia uh, annexed Crimea uh, in its effort. Uh, this group came into existence. I, I've seen some materials that uh, discussed the existence of other kinds of private military companies in the past in Russia. And uh, this is the latest one and the most successful, well-established one uh, in the recent history of private military companies in Russia. What's interesting is, by law, though, in Russia, private military companies are illegal. They are mm-hmm. not supposed to exist. Mm-hmm. And what we think is, the analysts uh, believe, is that uh, they were created uh, mostly initially outside of Russia when they were uh, fighting against uh, you know foreign forces and then trying to help uh, you know, the key uh, Russian allies, like Syria, for instance, and uh, mm. in different parts around the world where Russia has a presence trying to help the totalitarian or authoritarian regimes abroad. Uh, Moscow often ends up sending these <coughs> private military companies uh, there rather than the uh, Russia's official army. Mm. And so... Uh, the, the Wagner Group itself is is one of the uh, these private companies, and the most, uh, the largest and most significant one came to exist. The name Wagner uh, has little to do with actually Prigozhin himself. Uh, Prigozhin is known to be a co-founder of uh, this military group, and the ori- official uh, founder, the, the initial founder. Prigozhin came along as known to be a co-founder later on, but uh, initially it, it's known to have been created by uh, someone who has a background in special military force and then intelligence operations, Dmitry Utkin. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a little known about him, not mm-hmm. even uh, his picture. Uh, he has not been seen in public since 2016. So, uh, you know, the information about Dmitry Utkin is limited, but he is known to be the founder of this company. And the name Wagner comes from his call sign when he was in the in the battlefield and military operations. His call sign was Wagner, mm. and that's where the name came from. 
And all the years, as you mentioned at the introduction, uh, Prigozhin has been known as uh, Putin's chef, mm. uh, most, mostly becoming visible through like a supply of uh, food catering services to mm. uh, you know Kremlin and uh, Russian military. And uh, you know Prigozhin is someone that uh, uh, Putin has known since his uh, St. Petersburg years, mm-hmm. uh, when he was operative there, and then he, when he was uh, part of the city government, I think uh, we heard that they became friends. Uh, we, we can never confirm all the details, but <sighs> some of the Western sources say Prigozhin was a uh, hot dog vendor on right, the street right. <laughs> who, <laughs> became, who became Putin's friend, but we're not exactly sure how all the details go. But they've known each other since then. Prigozhin uh, came to join Putin in Moscow later on, so they have uh, been close friends for years. And uh, initially, there were allegations that when this Wagner group came into visibility, they were saying Prigozhin is actually the one who owns this group. Uh, and Prigozhin, for a long time, denied that. Hmm. He said he has nothing to do with the Wagner group. Now, now we know for the last about a year or two, hmm. uh, he came out uh, out of the closet and saying he actually is the one who's running the Wagner Group. So this is an interesting uh, concept. Uh, we're not familiar with this. Uh, I guess there's a Blackwater uh, company, U- U.S. company, that was being outsourced for U.S. operations uh, mm. during the uh, War of Terror and so on. So there is some similarity there, but it's not a concept that we're entirely familiar with, private I remember there was a Korean movie that tried to better capture the concept of PMC. I'm not quite sure if it got enough attention. I, I think it was helmed by actor Ha jong but that's perhaps besides uh, the point. Right. <laughs> right. Um, so, of course, there's a lot of analysis and speculation, but clearly this was perhaps arguably the greatest challenge to Russian President Vladimir Putin's grip on power over Russia. The fact that Prigozhin and maybe the Wagner group are out of the war in Ukraine may inherently weaken Russia's performance in the battlefield. It's just a speculation, but it's one of the leads anyway. So perhaps mm-hmm. we need an overview. What did Prigozhin's uprising and the Wagner Group's fast advance towards Moscow tell us about the condition the Russian state is in? Yeah, when uh, Prigozhin announced his intention to challenge Moscow, what we saw was in the southeastern tip of Ukraine, um, the Wagner Group uh, military and army group came out and then they entered Russia and uh, took over the southern command mm. overnight and uh, uh, moved up 1,000 kilometers northwards and got close as close as uh, 200 uh, kilometers uh, from Moscow, south of Moscow. They advanced that fast uh, within a day and a half. And that was really uh, shocking, the, this phenomenon that shocked the world as a whole. You know, like the, the people are wondering, observers are all wondering, what is what is Russian military doing? Uh, how come they don't see any resistance? Mm. And so on. And so all after the fact, still the speculations uh, continue regarding uh, Prigozhin's interaction mm. and relationship with Russian military. How, how do we explain the incredible lack of resistance while the Wagner group advanced so fast, right. uh, you know, so quickly. And so observers and analysts 
are eager to offer the the system weakness and how things have been falling apart in Russia and so on. And on the other hand, some other uh, speculators were speculating about how actually some of the key members of Russian military might have been uh, kind of uh, not not actively working with Progozin, but acquiescence about what he was doing and trying to look for a chance to have a different opportunity in, in kind of like post-Putin world, if you will. Uh, so opportunists, you know, what they call. And mm. so there have been all these different speculations. And the consensus seems to be that what this Prigozhin and the Wagner Group incident has revealed is incredible level of potential instability of the system, the, the state mm. system of Russia, how vulnerable it is, and, and so on. And uh, so that's consensus, and people are saying uh, Putin has been incredibly weakened, and his position is just not the same as, as before, and so on. I tend to take a minority view here, that is, at least in the immediate term, uh, you know, I think about this case of NASA, United States NASA astronauts and their accidents. Uh, this NASA astronauts used to say the safest time for space flight is right after the accident. Ah. And so <laughs> right. um, for a while, Putin probably even, uh, I, I guess the system has been shown to be very weak and fragile and so on, but but for several future, Putin will probably do all he can to preserve his power and stay in power. Hmm. Uh, so any expectation for any upcoming instability in the short term uh you know, time horizon would be unreasonable the way I see it. And, you know, also analysts have been all saying how Putin is going to make his move in, in terms of getting rid of uh, Prigozhin and even, uh, you know, assassinate or execute Prigozhin eventually and so on. So that those kind of moves, uh, crack down and further strengthening his position will be the moves that I would like to, uh, not would like to, but I would expect coming in, in our way rather than any immediate instability showing outside. You're almost expecting uh, Putin to double down to protect his, uh, I suppose, stay in power, to legitimize his stay in power, and that's your educated guess. Which brings us to our next set of questions. We hear an argument that the weakened Putin poses a greater threat to world peace. Uh, Would you explain that notion uh, based on your theory there? Yeah, I think it's a well-known idea, Mm. and uh, we saw that being expressed at the gathering of uh, EU heads of the states last week when they gathered, uh, many of them were saying, uh, we don't support Putin, but uh, we do not welcome uh, any instability of his his absence in the immediate Mm. term, meaning that uh, him being further weakened and creating further instability in Russia is not an interest of EU, they say. Mm. Just like any power around the world, what we often hope for is stability and status quo and preserving the status quo. And those people who bring change to the status quo are the ones who are being hated. Uh, And so, Mm. uh, you know, Putin's instability itself means unpredictability and things to come uh, that we don't understand is not something that's welcomed. Uh, So that's why EU, uh, EU leaders were saying all those things and our immediate interest lies in preserving. They didn't go as, as far as saying, articulating, specifically stating that they want to preserve Putin in power, but 
they express more of the real concern mm-hmm. about the instability for, for Russia. So that's overall idea because, you know, Russia is a power with nuclear weapons. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, this in, in Ukraine war for the last, uh, you know, year and a half, Russia's overall military strength has been shown to be not exactly as robust as we had expected before Ukraine war. So definitely uh, overall military strength-wise, Russia is not the same country that we thought we knew before. Mm-hmm. But the, the bottom line is this is a power that has nuclear weapons. So that's why a lot of people are afraid of uh, extreme instability in that country. Mm. Reports also suggest that the latest coup attempt has increased the size of the Russian population who opposed the war in Ukraine, as we discussed several times on the program before. No country is monolithic, and clearly there is anti-Putin, of course, uh, narratives there, and people who don't support the war in Ukraine. Do you see this new development affecting the Russian presidential election come next year? I was very curious about the fact because it was last Thursday, I think we saw a report about this so-called the, the Rabada Center uh, poll. And I don't know how reliable uh, poll, a poll would be, in, uh, to be uh, that's conducted in Russia. And they were conducting this Rabada Center was conducting a poll for about uh, five days or so last week uh, for the uh, sample size about 1,600 people. So I don't know how reliable this one is, but they came out, uh, they had conducted this polls before, and and they said before this Prigozhin incident, uh, for example, the, the Russian people who opposed the war in Ukraine used to be about 45%, below half, and now it has increased over by about 8%. And now, now the latest poll shows 53%. So uh, for the first time in a long time, uh, you know, more than half of Russian people are opposing the war in Ukraine. And this was a news indeed. And uh, opposition to Ukraine war, actually, what we know behind that, what it means is perhaps lack of support for Putin. So, you know, when as we see rising number of Russians uh, openly opposing the war, responding this poll this way, uh, what it means is the future of Putin and his political tenure. And when we talk about that, of course, we are also talking about next, I think, next year, March, mid-March, Russia is scheduled to have its uh, presidential election. So in that case, what's going to happen? Uh you know, we'll have to closely watch uh, what will happen this time. Before Ukraine war, uh, observers were saying that uh, what's most likely to happen in Russia is that uh, Putin is going to have another person like uh, Dmitry Medvedev that, that he had before, right? Uh, when mm. he when Putin served his first two four-year terms from 2000 until 2008, after these two terms of four-year, uh, you know, term each, he set up Dmitry Medvedev as the president. Mm-hmm. And uh, as we know, Putin served as the prime minister, and he came back quickly. Right. This is all because of their constitution. So Putin did not change constitution; just put his what many people call his puppet, mm-hmm. uh, Dmitry Medvedev, in the office, and then came back quickly after that. And they were saying before Ukraine war, that's more what's most likely happened. 
this time as well, he will come up with another puppet and then he will serve as a proud, probably prime minister and then he'll come back later on. But but everything has changed since the Ukraine war. And now with the uh, uh, rising indication that increasing number of Russian people are openly unhappy with Putin, uh, it could mean a lot of different possibilities. But you know, mm. well, we're not fortune teller here, so we'll have to wait and see <laughs> well, for other indications coming our way. We don't mean to rush, Professor Kim, but we do want to get to our final question before we let you go. When it comes mm. to this Russian turmoil, what are the key implications for Beijing and Pyongyang, who would be seen as key allies for Russia? We heard reports from Beijing that the Russian, uh, the Chinese government is stepping up its efforts in terms of uh, political indoctrination, it's, it's military. So for sure, uh, we know there is an awareness and uh, mm. the attention there in Beijing. Uh, interesting thing is experts of these authoritarian regimes uh, who study Beijing, who study China and, and North Korea, uh, they uh, always say these militaries in authoritarian and totalitarian countries are uh, set up in such a way that their primary mission is preservation of their regimes. Mm before actually uh, defending the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what that means is often, particularly this is the case in Pyongyang, uh, their military is very much divided. Mm-hmm. And uh, the best and brightest and strongest ones are the ones who protect the Kim regime around uh, Pyongyang, mm-hmm. uh, even more so than the military that, that defends uh, the country at the DMZ, for instance. Mm-hmm. So uh, these military structures are very much fragmented in order to have competition amongst themselves and competition of uh, loyalty. And if one group rises, the other groups will come and to, uh, you know, crush them. Uh, so there, there's that interesting uh, check and balance system that exists in these organizations of violence uh, in authoritarian regimes. So uh, what we will get to see is for the indications of checking against one another and also strengthen the political indoctrination from from above. Uh, those will be the moves that we'll mm-hmm. be expecting, perhaps in Beijing and Pyongyang. Thank you very much, Professor Kim, for your insights this morning. We appreciate it as always. We'll see you next week. Thank you. If you're listening to our program using the podcast service, just a reminder that we do go live Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. Korea Standard Time. So tune in and help us make the show more informative by giving us your input. See you bright and early on Good Morning Seoul.